Welcome to another edition of Inside the War Room. Ryan Ray here as always. Thank you so much for tuning in. And hey, if you're new to the program, go drop us a five-star uh, rating and review wherever you hear this wonderful podcast as we are trying to turn them out as much as humanly possible. Today's guest is uh, someone I've, I've got to know somewhat on LinkedIn, as good as you can get to know someone on LinkedIn. And I've already apologized for mispronouncing his name. Longtime listeners of the podcast know that Annunciation of names is not my strong suit, but I will try my best. Uh, Laurent Beglin, <laughs> I think, is how I've, uh, I, will, I'll let you correct me if I'm uh, however you want to say it, but I'll just call you good, sir, moving forward. It's great to have you on. Uh, tell folks you've got podcasts and investments and all kinds of energy stuff. Tell folks a little bit about yourself. Well, well, thank you, Ryan. It's, it's really a pleasure to, to talk with you because also I'm a big listener of the your, your Texas uh, Oil and Friends podcast. I love your show. I love your flow. I think that the number of things you say, <laughs> there's a lot of inaccuracy, but that's that's part of the charm. So my name is Laurent Segalen, and I'm a Franco-British clean energy investment banker. I'm based in London. And for the past 25 years, I've uh, traded carbon credits, clean power. I have a broker wind farm, solar parks. And I mean, generally, I'm interested in the energy transition. Of course, in order to do the energy transition, you need to know where do you transit from. And of course, you need to know what's going on generally in the electricity market. So you need to know where gas is. You need to know where coal is, where nuclear is. And of course, more recently, but that's quite recent, it's the whole development of the electric, you know, electric transportation, which is going to touch oil or not, you know, large debate. And uh, so, yeah, that's it in a nutshell. Well, one of the reasons I created this podcast is to have on these conversations. It's called a war room. So you can come in here, you can have, I don't want to say difficult conversations, but you can have conversations. Um, you know, I had a guest on a, a few weeks ago and, and he got off and he goes, I really appreciate the fact that you realized I was arguing with your argument, not with you personally. And I said, exactly. That's what we're here for. So I'll let you have the floor, sir. You said I get, I get a lot of things wrong. You pick one and we'll get into it. No, it's, it's really... It's really a matter of where you talk from. Because if you talk from Texas, and if I talk from Europe, or if I talk from China or India, or ge geography counts. Absolutely. You are in a place where you're going to produce much more energy than you can consume, or you're going to produce that type of energy. Of course, you're going to do whatever it takes to promote it. If you talk to someone from Alberta, they're going to explain to you that the oil sands are the most environmental and you know best oil in the world. Sure. And if you if you talk from uh, the, the Chinese coal miner from the Shanxi province, he will tell you that coal is absolutely wonderful. Mm. And but uh, if you are the, the problem we have in Europe. And, and it's it's also the case in, in other places, is we need to import 80% of our energy. 80%? So, yeah, 80%. And, you know, we'd like to import it from nice places like Switzerland, where they give you chocolate. <laughs> uh, but you need to import it from the Russians. You need to import it from the Saudis. And, and 
you have two options, you know, you have the US Navy and, you know, people uh, get in line and they obey or not, whatever you suggest, or you don't have a big military and you need to play along with people you don't necessarily want to spend your vacation with. Yes. So, so if you are in a context where you're an energy importer, and if I remember what well, 10 years ago, it cost Europe $500 billion per year to import energy. You'll do whatever it takes to lower the bill. Right. And that's why that was a very powerful driver behind the energy transition. Now, of course, on the top of that, you get the Greens, which is you know, a moral movement, which has been around for ages, still continue to be there. And but on its own, the Greens are not very vocal. But uh, and it's great in a certain way, but they are not sufficient to move the needle. They are sufficient to move the needle if you have some investment and you have some clean technology, which cost, you know, is comparable at least to you know existing technologies. So let me let me tell you my general energy policy to make sure, or, or philosophy on energy policy, make sure that see where we disagree maybe. So I am. Um, energy agnostic, I say. So if you are in the remote village of Zambia, how you consider energy policy and what energy source to bring in is fundamentally different than New York City. Um, so that's generally my philosophy. So um, in Texas, obviously, we have a lot of oil, as you mentioned. Um, but if you're talking about the remote bush in Zambia, how I would think about energy would work differently there. To your point about Europe, uh, and we talked about this a little bit offline, um, but you know, the thing with Europe, I don't I don't really have a problem with Europe, whatever they want to use. Um, I think there's a couple things is there's one thing to say that we want to move from this type of energy to that type of energy and not tell everyone what's involved. Right. So if you want to move to EVs, well, let's talk about the impact of rare earth mineral mining and where those come from. Uh, if it's a moral thing, <laughs> if it's a moral thing, if it's oh, an economic thing, go ahead, go ahead. That, that is extraordinary. What's extraordinary? For, I mean, for a hundred years, uh, the refining industry has been using cobalt. Nobody cared when Exxon or Chevron they used cobalt in the refine in the yeah. refineries where the cobalt came from. But all of a sudden, you put a, a bit of cobalt in a in a battery, and everybody tells you that oh my god, it comes from this uh, you know child labor in the middle of Congo. No, 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 no. <laughs> okay, right. That's, that's... Yes, well, the point would be. The point would be is, is that if you're saying that you are concerned about the environment, well, let's have a conversation about the environment. And that's it, fine. That's it, fine. Right. And so it's not it's not saying that one is better than the other. It's it's that in the US, I don't I can't speak to Europe. In the US, there's not much debate over what happens when you switch from A to B. It's just, hey, let's go from A and let's move to B. And then everyone talks as if B has no environmental consequences or there's no downside to B. And that to me is the concern with the energy policy discussion not to say what you're pointing out is well you know oil and gas have used this and now you oil and gas guys are mad that the mm -hmm. ev guys well i'm not saying that i'm saying what we're being told is that there's no drawbacks to the evs and it's like well that's that's not true and i, I can't speak for what happens in europe but i agree i agree i look i agree you know evs you need to mine stuff mm. you're going to use uh nickel coming mm -hmm. out of russia you know, you're going to use cobalt coming out of Congo. You're going to use lithium 
coming mostly out of Australia and all this is going to be processed in China. I agree. It's yeah. look, there's no perfect solution. Right. But where we disagree is that you say I'm an energy agnostic. And I'm going to say I'm an energy agnostic as well, okay. provided you factor in the externalities. If you say, look, coal, I look at the price of coal, I look at the price of gas, you know, I do my math, you know, coal is a bit more expensive or a bit cheaper. But if you don't account for the carbon emissions, if you say the price of CO2 is zero, that I disagree. And in Europe, the, the, the pricing carbon has been very popular for the past 20 years, because when you get the price of gas or the price of coal or the price of anything else, you've got the price, including the, the price of carbon, which is, by the way, not determined by a government, is determined by the market. So that, okay. I say, look, price carbon, and then I'm happy to be agnostic once it's priced. Okay, so let me, uh, <clears throat> so let me ask you this. If you look at an, an emerging market and you're saying that we have to price carbon, hmm. okay, I would say my pushback to that would be is, well, you're now making energy more expensive for the people who least can afford it by pricing this carbon in. So how would you respond to that? Well, Who's I'm, pay that bill? Well, I mean, frankly, uh, that exactly the type of speech I listened 20 years ago when we put the carbon market in Europe. And I was part of the people who helped the commission to, to draft the, the regulation. And they said, oh, the price are going to go through the roof and so on. No, it's not true. I mean, 20 years has proven that uh, the price of carbon has not changed a dime, has had zero impact. It's just about, because right now the good thing is the, the price of alternatives has, has become so low that in fact the you know pricing carbon just accelerate the transition. The transition is going to happen whether you like it or not. Okay. The question is, do you want the energy transition to happen in five years or ten years? Carbon allows you to, because they price the externality, to transition faster. Now, if the price of look, okay, let's take some crazy technologies like you know, you know, geothermal or wave or tidal. Those stuff will never be economic. You know, carbon move the needle 20%. But if you need for, you know, whatever, you need 600% subsidies, that I disagree. I want clean, but I want cheap. Mm -hmm. And the, the good thing is now, I mean, solar and wind, uh, they're dirt cheap. Now, yeah. it's not that simple because sure. what happens when the sun doesn't shine? What happens when the wind doesn't blow? I agree. It's very difficult to run the system 100%. Mm -hmm. But in Europe, we've been running the whole system for almost two years. We have 50% renewables. Mm -hmm. 50%. And how do you do that? There's a lot of digital. There's a, I mean, there's a lot of the, the progress which has been made in technology to harness the fact, oh, tomorrow there's going to be too much wind or not enough wind. You have the hydros, you've got the system, you've got the batteries. The, I, I would have accepted this uh, type of speech 20 years ago, but the amount of technological progress which has been done allows any system to, to live with probably 50% renewables. I agree, going to 100%, that's much more difficult. Okay. That's much more difficult. So we need backup systems, and this is where gas... It's going to be okay. So maybe I'm, help me connect this point. You're saying that what I'm saying is tw should have been was said 20 years ago, 
and that the price is so cheap, then why do we need to factor in the price of carbon if if it if it doesn't matter? If if if, if these other sources are so cheap, then why do we need to factor in the price of carbon? Is it because just- we, because if you believe in climate change or not, if you believe climate change is a political imperative or not. And okay. well, I mean, you know, I- but if, if you say climate change is just an invention of uh, you know of greenies, uh, you know, I respect, but I will disagree. Uh, you know, for me, climate change is important. The whole ESG movement is important. You will point to all the excess of the energy ESG movement, and I will agree with you. But I will say this is also a very powerful trend. So at some point, the polluters need to pay something. So I would say that we'll talk about climate change in a second, because that's an interesting discussion I, want, I definitely want to have with you. But let's talk about malaria. Let's talk about infant death. Let's talk about what's actually happening right now, right? And so climate change is something that we can talk about. It, but you know, is it 2050, 2080, you know, whatever it is. But today, there are people dying of malaria, people dying of childbirth, they're dying because they can't have clean water. So how do you, and I just, I'll just try to get you, how do you balance today's needs versus the potential threat um, 30, 50, 70 years from now? Well, I mean, malaria, I mean, Bill Gates is taking care of it. Well, I hope he does. <laughs> 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 Okay. Yeah. Uh, look, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I mean, thank you for asking me a question about solving the world's problem. I'm just trying to, you know, everything I've done in the past 25 years was just trying to accelerate the transition, but not by burning too much of public money because public money is precious. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it's your taxes, and you need to have, you know, a legal system. You need to have roads. You need to have hospitals. Right. You need to take care of all the sick people. So having you know too much public money sunk into you know crazy stupid technology, I you know I I, I disagree. Yeah. Now if you say you know how do I solve the people? I mean, look, how do you solve the problem in Ethiopia? How do you solve the problem in uh, in uh, what is it Burma? I mean, look, it's problem everywhere, and has been problem everywhere all the time. Right. Uh, there's only one country where there's zero problem, no greens, and everything is beautiful. It's called North Korea, and I'm not interested. <laughs> you don't want to go there for vacation? No, no, sir. I want to no, go. I really want to go. I want to go take a look. Yeah, I'll be honest yeah. with you. No, and currently, the, the, the ticket Houston to Pyongyang is quite cheap. It's the return <laughs> ticket, which is very expensive. <laughs> It's a one-way deal. It's exactly. a one-way deal. Well, and, and so obviously, I'm not trying to get you to pin you down and say, "Hey, solve all these problems." Again, I think the the depth that these conversations have, and of course, we can't solve it all in an hour. Is that when you talk about the climate change concerns, there are legitimate concerns today, and it's like, okay, how do you balance these things? And my concern um, from um, geography, you're saying, is that. When I go to Africa, what I hear is a lot of ideals that are being imported from the West, and they're not actually practical on the ground as where these particular people are at. I'm a little bit concerned that we're we are trying to force stuff that's a little bit premature for some of these areas. Now, I, with that being okay, said, no, no. So I, I I can talk about that. Okay. Because if you look at Africa, I mean sub-Saharan Africa, what they do right now, you know, they're going to chop the trees or they're going to use diesel. Which, which cost them a fortune. Yes, agreed. And what everybody's trying to get, it's a little solar panel on every roof with a little battery, 
and mm -hmm. that's you can electrify all of Africa like this. Yeah, and, well, and, and and but and this is this is clean, this is green, and this is the cheapest. In me, yeah. So so me and you would sit there and go, that is a agnostic approach to a very simple problem. It's it happening, and it's happening. It's happening. There's zero government policy. Yeah. You, you, you have something in Kenya called M-Pesa. Basically, people don't have a bank account. Their bank account is in their mobile phone. Yes. So they arrive in the market. You know, they deliver their flowers or their fruits mm -hmm. or their meat. Or their, they get credited on their mobile phone. Mm -hmm. And then after, they can go and buy the solar panel. And because they know, I don't know how the system works in detail, but, you know, they can go with their solar panels, you know, on there, and they will get a microcredit for two years. Mm -hmm. And that exists. There's no, you don't need to, to have global leaders to meet and so on because it's just happening. Uh, agreed. Agreed. I think, I think yes. Uh, very much, uh, the first time I went to South Africa, uh, they took me by some of the lower income areas. And I think the government in this part of the country, at least, had subsidized subsidized uh, hot water heaters to go on these houses with mm -hmm. a solar panel so they could have hot water in the house. And it was like, okay, that's a that's a solution that seems to be pretty easy, pretty cheap, pretty uh, something you could replicate. And you just look out across this little village, I say village, whatever you want to call it, and there's just thousands of little hot water heaters on top of these houses with solar panels. And so um, there are solutions like that that we should definitely be talking about. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, when I was in Johannesburg, uh, every time I've been, there's a thick fog smog that just sits over it from all the mining and stuff they do. Um, what are your thoughts about, um, you know, so South Africa would be probably the most prosperous of the sub-Saharan uh, nations. What are your thoughts about nuclear power plant being rolled out um, more widely across the world? Look, it's everybody's dream, but the uh, uh, problem of nuclear is that it's awfully expensive. I mean, when I say awfully, it's awfully expensive. I mean, look at in the US, you've got the bottle plant. Mm -hmm. It's like 10 years delay. And I mean, this Westinghouse, I mean, you've got your best nuclear engineers working on it. They have a 10 year delay, and the budget, which was like $15 billion, yeah. is $23 billion. Yeah. Right. Now, you know, who can, I don't see anyone in, in Africa being able to, you know, pay for a nuclear plant. Plus, it, you just don't press a button. You need nuclear engineers. You need to know where you're going to get your uranium from. You need to go out to recycle your uranium and not uh, build nuclear weapons with it. Because whatever they tell you, the nuclear industry, the civilian and the military, they are good buddies. And the most absurd thing I hear about nuclear is in Iran. You know, in Iran, they are building a nuclear plant. They've got the biggest gas reserves on the planet. They share it with Qatar, the biggest. I mean, Texas is like, it's a minnow compared to Iran. <laughs> it's like the guy, he has a warehouse full of Pepsi Cola and he needs, he say, but I need a Coca-Cola. Say, no, guys, you've got your whole warehouse. It's absurd. <laughs> so, of course, they, they don't do it for power. They do it for, you know, sure for, for the weapons. So, but okay, so how much... So, nuclear is like, I mean, the, in, in the UK, they build one, they are building one new plant. It cost because we know exactly how much it cost because the government had to give a tariff. Mm. They gave a guaranteed tariff for 35 years, inflation uh, adjust, adjusted, so every year it creeps up, and it's 24/7. So even when it's sunny, even when it's windy, you still need to pay for that for that tariff. The price right now is 150 dollars per megawatt hour. 
The price in Texas is 30. The price on PGM is 40. So those people, they get guaranteed three, four, five times the market price for 35 years inflation. And the, and the, <laughs> the best thing is they can't even make money on the construction. So, I mean... <laughs> Right. Sure. So you have the large, so you have the large plants, which are super expensive. And my, my, I got two questions. One, how much do you attribute that to being over regulation or do you think the regulation on nuclear is appropriate Two, what are your thoughts on kind of the micro grid, um, uh, not micro grid, the, um, oh, wait, uh, the micro, the micro, the, 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 small, yeah. the small modules. Yeah. The micro modules on nu nuclear. So, what are your thoughts okay. so, so when you do when you do nuclear, the, the thing is you need to build everything. It's not something you can you know manufacture in a, in a, in a plant. You know everything is a, is a one off. It's like you build a bridge or you know you you do a tunnel, and then because of Fukushima, and you know they, they saw the disaster of Fukushima, they say okay maybe there's one chance every one million year they tell you or one chance every ten thousand years. The problem is it happens every 20 years, but okay, let's assume it's one every 100 years. But the, the cost of Fukushima was 10 billion. That was the cost of the plant. The cost to Japan to clean up the mess was 200 billion, which means that no insurer will ever insure a, a nuclear plant. It's all public money. That's a good point. That's a good point. You know, it's, you know, it's all public money. So the risks are tiny, I agree. Mm -hmm. But if there is a problem, the costs are like crazy. I mean, the, the costs are insane. Uh, so, and it's just to produce electrons. Now, I understand when there was nothing else, you know, and it was the 50s and the 60s, you know, you might want to do it because you say, but, you know, that was the time where they would, in, in the world, they would, they, they would produce 50 nuclear plants per year. Mm -hmm. Now it's down to two. Mm -hmm. So, so you don't have the effect where you know you can have the prices will go down. Now, the dream that you're going to build something small and it's going to be cheaper, it doesn't work. In fact, this is typically a case where the bigger it is, uh, the cheaper it is. So, you're not going to make them any cheaper. So, I know there is new scale and there is the the, the terra uh, the terra power from Bill Gates, but it's in ten years' time. Look, good luck. It's Bill Gates' money. <laughs> you know, it's going to burn it or not. Uh -huh. You know, I don't want to say it's not going to work. I'm saying it, that's fine. It's his money. Um, uh, you know, good for him. What would you say to maybe um, China, India, Pakistan, these large population countries who are, you know, at various levels between those three industrializing? Would you suggest that maybe those type of countries who are going to have huge power sources as they become more wealthy uh, consider something like nuclear, despite the exorbitant costs. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. It makes sense. Uh, I, I mean, if you take, uh, if you take, um, if you take Japan, Korea, uh, northern eastern China, India. I'm a bit less, less sure because India, the, the the solar resources are exceptional. Yeah. Uh, for, for big load centers, it probably makes sense to have 25-30% uh, of nuclear power on the grid. But it is, it is not a market-based. It's a decision, politics, and it's, it's going to be done by in conjunction with the military 
And the, if you look at the, the, the only big countries that do nuclear are sitting at the UN Security Council. Mm -hmm. Because the price is so horrendous that you, you will never find a market uh, approach to justify it. But if you say, I want to run the world or co-run the world, I've got my nuclear uh, weapons, then you can justify having a, a civil nuclear industry. Okay. But that's how I see it. Now, of course, people, they explain me a lot of things, but, <laughs> but the, the, cost for, the, the cost just don't make sense. Okay, so let's talk about Russia a little bit. You ah, Russia. <laughs> the Ruskies. Now, let me just, before we get started, I have made this abundantly clear to anyone who listens to me. I think the Ruskies pose zero threat. And I say zero threat, legitimate war threat to the U.S. Zero. None. Nilch. Nada. That doesn't mean they might, you know, fire off some crazy thing here or there in Afghanistan or whatever. But as far as a legit security risk to our country, none. Now, that being said, um, in the U.S., you talk about geography, so go back to geography. In the U.S., this is how it's phrased. Them Europeans want to buy that Ruski gas, and they want us to defend them. Now, okay, that's how it's phrased. But the U.S., at the same time, the U.S. buy Russian oil. There's no problem. There's no problem with that. The guys in Boston, What is it? So in, in Boston, they, they've been importing Russian gas all winter long. That was fine. But you, the European can't get Russian gas, but the U.S. can get Russian oil. Say, okay, fine. Okay. But we're not asking the Europeans to defend us from the Russians. Um, but I don't think we need defense. Well, give me your stance on just Europe importing energy from Russia. Do you think it's a good thing? Do you think it's a bad thing? Is there a real threat from Russia from your perspective? I'm just curious how you think about that. Because to me, I think it's a lot of... Cold War era stuff is being pushed forward um, today, and I think most of that's just smoke and mirrors. I'm in the minority position here, so I'm curious your thoughts. Okay, so first of all, <laughs> let me tell you a funny story. Twin. Yeah, it was like 10 years ago, I was working for a Japanese bank, which had lended money to Ukraine, 500 million to finance clean projects. And I was, because I was uh, in London, that was, uh, I mean, Basically, they sent me to Kiev to kind of check where the money has been properly invested into, you know, redoing district heating or, trans, you know, clean transportation. I mean, there was there's a big Excel sheet full of projects that they were supposed to finance. And then so I arrived there and as a banker, we, we had a kind of businessman. guy had no business card or anything, but he was our fixer. And he comes and he says, oh, I like your bank very much and so on. So we go to the ministry and uh, he enters without any appointment in the Minister of Environment and he tells the minister, please get us two coffees. And he sits and says, oh my God, where am I? And he looks so and says, um, yeah, I think the minister can tell you where your money is, but let me tell you, your money is gone. <laughs> I, say, I say, what do you mean your money's gone? Well, I mean, the moment he landed, we just took it, you know, some went to the Russians, some went to our friends, some went to Switzerland. I say, look, I, I can't go back and, you know, tell that story. I say, just made it up. Just say we need one more billion or something for more projects. <laughs> and I was like, I say, oh, my God, what's going on? And then after, 
they brought me to this great uh, restaurant, which was on, on, on a terrace overlooking that great river, like gigantic river, as big as the Mississippi called the, the Dnieper. They have a, a, in Kiev and there were a lot of, you know, pretty girls. I mean, you could, you could see, you could, you know, sense the money. And come this guy, and the guy is like, you know, is like exhausted. I say, uh, sorry, uh, ah, I'm the minister of finance. I just spent the whole day talking with the IMF. I've no clue what, the, what they're talking about. And I, I and I say, oh, that's going to be a painful day. I say, no, the painful thing starts now because I own four disco and I need to go to each of one of them to make sure nobody's stealing my money. <laughs> so the minister of finance was, you know, owned discotheques. <laughs> and everything was like that. And Ukraine was not really a country. It was managed by, I mean, it's not like the mafia uh, <laughs> uh, influenced the government. It's the mafia is the government. government yeah. But they were nice guys. I mean, I had a great time. I mean, we really had a great time. I mean, those people are great. I had a great time. And I came back and I made a very complex report explaining that I we needed to investigate further or something like this. And But... Give another billion. <laughs> yeah, but that's where you realize <laughs> that I don't look, and that was 10 years ago, but all those people were living out of stealing Russian gas. Yeah. And I think at some point the Russians made the calculation and somehow they were stealing about a billion per year. Mm -hmm. I mean, nobody really knows. And they realized that if they bought German politician, it would be cheaper, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. is what they did. And, you know, uh, they hired a former chancellor, Karl Schroeder, is on the payroll of Gazprom. And they have, they, are, they have the Hotel Adlon in Berlin, which is owned by Gazprom. It's just next to the Bundestag. And basically, everybody is on the payroll of Gazprom. But guess what? I mean, the Germans, they're very, you know, they're very organized. So... You know, it costs 100 million a year, but everything is delivered on time, on budget. Everything's perfect. Was the, the Ukrainian, they were stealing. Because if you look at the gas quantity, you know, it's just the Russian did not want to send their gas to Ukraine. The, the quantities are the same. Even though the quantities are a bit lower, that's why the price of gas is expensive in Europe. So I can understand that between Ukrainian oligarchs and German politicians, uh, the Russian decided to deal with German politicians. I mean, it's not about defending NATO and everything. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a sound business decision. So, <laughs> that's a great story, by the way, that's a great story. I got to come to London and hang out and get the real stories that are off the record. <laughs> okay, so how do the German people perceive this? Because last year. There was a story, the Wall Street Journal, um, talking about the Russian business, meant the Russian, the German business leaders were complaining to the German politicians about Chinese business practices and how Chinese have been stealing, um, you know, their IP and stuff like this. And the, 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 the journal tried to tease out the idea, which was essentially the German leadership is in a tough spot because if they make the Chinese mad, the average citizen will be impacted by, you know, the price of imports or not be able to get the need or whatever. But no, 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 it's about the cars. It's all about the cars. It's all about the cars. Volkswagen, BMW, Mercedes, they send so much cars in China. And and the Chinese are very can be very hitchy. And if if the if the Chinese government just 
can decide to re revoke whatever they have in China, like overnight. And that's really bad for Germany. It's really about the cars. It's what? not about the price of uh, T-shirts. Now, if you go back to Russia, historically, and I know there have been world wars and, you know, and Hitler and Stalin and everything. But if you look over a long period, Germany and, and Russia, they have, they have a decent relationship. Mm. Uh, and if you take the, big, the, the, the biggest um, uh, Tsar, I mean, Tsarina, she was a woman, Catherine the Great, she was born in Germany. And, you know, so there's a lot of interaction between the German who are somehow the manufacturers and Russians who are providing the raw material. Those, those, those two economies are kind of intertwined. And of course, if you have war, everything stops. But if you just let geography and mutual interest play its game, they find a lot of, you know, joint interest. Yeah, so my question, I guess, would be is how do the people on the ground, the average citizen in Germany, like when you talk about this stuff, you know, if this was going on in the U.S., you know, the right would be upset if it was the left or the left upset with the right. During the last presidential election, Joe Biden's son, um, Hunter Biden, being tied up in Ukraine was a big story. He went to Kiev. <laughs> he met, he met <laughs> my buddies, yeah. Oh, was, he, was he in that meeting with you? <laughs> no, unfortunately, I must have been in the ground floor. You must have been on the fifth floor. But how did the German <laughs> citizens think about the Russians, um, you know, you know, hiring their politicians? Is that kosher? I mean, just from the American perspective, it sounds weird, but I'm curious. <laughs> that's normal. Yeah, look, I mean, it's. Yeah, I mean, everybody wants to have the moral high ground, but at the end of the day, you need your energy, you need to sell your Volkswagen. I mean, you need to be pragmatic. Sure. So, you know, I know, Ryan, you want purity all over the world. Reality is a bit messy, you know. <laughs> oh, it's very messy. I don't deny that. I, I'm just trying to, I'm more, I'm just more curious um, is how it's viewed because. One of the things when you when you travel different countries, um, as you have done, you talk to people and you get the third perspective on how things are. Like you're telling me your perspective on stuff is yeah. different than my perspective. And so I always love to hear what people's perspective are on things. Not that whether I agree or not, it's not really relevant. I'm just genuinely curious because um, that interprets. And this is going back to maybe some of the energy discussion stuff. But this and this and you know how you perceive the world and how you perceive how the world should be ran and is ran and all those things. Um, impacts how you think about larger societal issues or energy policy or whatever. And so something like this, you know, I don't have a problem with the, the Russians selling gas to whoever wants to buy it from them. I think, to be quite honest with you, um, the U.S. should be out of the sanctioning business. That's that's my stance. It has been for some time. And so, you know, if the Iranians want to sell, you know, Russians want to sell, I, I don't. I think all that should be, that's just hogwash. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm always no, sure. Look, 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 let's, let's, look, you talk about economics and the agnostic. The LNG ports in Europe, they run at 25% capacity. Why? Because Russian gas is cheaper. Right. It's cheaper. So, you know, if the U.S. say, oh, you know, don't buy Russian gas, fine. Send me your gas cheaper than the Russians. We'll buy everything you want. That's it. Right. So the argument from my perspective is quite simply, okay, that's fine. If the Russians, like I said, I don't care. If you want to buy from the Russians, that's fine. 
But the U.S. should not be in the NATO business because if you can buy the gas from the Russians and there's no security threat, which I think is very minimal, if anything, then we don't need to be in the NATO business. And, that, and to me, that would work hand in hand with what you're saying. I don't have a problem with you guys buying from the Russians or from whomever. Um, I just don't see the need for us to spend military dollars to, quote, protect the Europeans. That, that, that's no, fine. If the U.S. want to go to destroy NATO, fine. <laughs> and, and, and the whole system will reorganize itself. Yeah, but because no. but that's what my question early on was that you don't perceive. But, but NATO's very, NATO's very hollow, in the sense that you know NATO uh, ceased to have any um, uh, real. Uh, how, how can I put that? Uh, in front, in French, we say raison d'être. Mm -hmm. You know, reason for being. Mm -hmm. uh, after the fall of the Berlin Wall. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's like everywhere, you know, organization, they try to find a new, you know, reason to exist. Right. So, look, I mean, I think the U.S. like to have, I, th I think the U.S. have military presence in 100 countries in the world. Yeah. You know, they like it. Of course. <laughs> of course they do. Uh, so, you know, but if, if the U.S. say, okay, we're getting out of NATO, uh, I mean, the fact that you have NATO allows the U.S. to have a huge influence. The moment you, you say, okay, I'm done with NATO, it costs me too much, uh, you know, you're going to lose some influence. And, and, and so people probably are balancing how much NATO costs and how much do I get from it? And maybe it makes sense to just continue it the way it is. I don't think it costs that much, to tell you the truth. Oh, no, I don't think it costs that much. You know, relatively speaking, it probably didn't cost that much either. It costs oh. much less than Afghanistan. No, right. Yeah, no, no. Relatively speaking, I, I would suspect it's it's minimal It's minimal dollars. To me, it's more of a, just a, we just waste so much dang money. This, this is, you know, <laughs> what are we doing here? First, we should stop the wars, um, all of them. That'd be my first my first thought. And then second is stuff like this. We're, we're just wasting time and money. It is about influence. It is about the reserve currency. And most Americans don't understand how much U.S. foreign policy is tied to protecting the reserve currency far more above any, than it is anything else. Yeah, but look, I'd rather have dollars than bitcoins or, 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 <laughs> or, or Chinese yuan because at least I know who's in charge, you know. There's the rule of law. There's the Fed. I mean, at least, you know, I can, you know, I can see who's in charge and not, you know, a guy, a hacker behind his computer <laughs> being in charge of the reserve currency. You brought up Bitcoin. I'm curious because right now the U.S. is going to this big debate over, you know, is it, you know, a, a, uh, the worst thing for the environment or is it great for decentralization? How is Bitcoin perceived in the, Euro in the European side of the things? Okay, so it's very simple. If you're above 40, which is my case, it's the worst stupid thing. I don't understand shit about it. Uh, it's super polluting. If you're below 40, it's the most amazing thing. You know, everybody should be crypto. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's generational. And are the other coins like, uh, um, you know, Ethereum or whatever? Do those have much play in Europe, or is it pretty much Bitcoin? Uh, it's really Bitcoin. But but the the way Bitcoin was uh, was conceived. Uh, makes it extremely energy intensive because the guys who did that at the beginning they had no clue it would you know turn into a, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars of assets. Yeah. But no, what we're saying is we're trying in a lot of I mean going back to the energy to to use the blockchain, mm. uh, you know, to back some transactions or you know to to to, to 
I know, for instance, uh, in London, which is you know a great place to to move oil. Uh, each shipment of oil, each boat is tracked by blockchain. So you know you have a real traceability. So this is something I really believe a lot. Uh, crypto assets, you know, is, is generational. But look, it has been. I, th I think that for a while the government they just let it play, and now that it's big, you start seeing crackdowns all over the place. Yeah. Uh, you know, in China they closed the the the, the, the Bitcoin mines. Uh, there were four. Turkish, Turkish-based Bitcoin exchange. What can go wrong, you know, on the Turkish? <laughs> the four of them, people, <laughs> the guys disappeared with the money. <laughs> what can exactly. go wrong? And in in the UK, they, they there was this big uh, stuff called Binance, and now uh, yeah. this has become so big that the UK say, look, uh, you're, you're banned. Yeah. Uh, you, you, so look, that's what I think. Yeah. I think I'm an old man. And I think it's it's just outside my league. So, but if well, young people they want to do it, you know, fine. I'm open-minded. Well, okay. So I'm gonna <laughs> we'll wrap it up uh, with these this last question here. If you say that I'm currently 20 years behind on my talking points, what talking point will I be behind on 20 years from now? So where will energy be 20 years from now uh, that 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 uh, that we should be looking forward to? Okay. So so here I I like to. I have written somewhere, and it's really a good way to to conclude. It's the eight rules of the energy transition by John Kemp of uh, Reuters, and it's one of the best analysts. I mean, you can follow him on, on Twitter, John Kemp, K-E-M-P. And his eight rules are: energy systems are always in transition. So, I mean, always. There's always transition going on. Number two, transitions driven by long-term economic and social forces are more powerful than politics. Which means, for instance, Trump did not want to hear about climate change. Under Trump, wind was up 50%, solar times two, EVs times six. So that's what I'm saying. Economic, social, more important than politics. Number three, uptake of new energy sources and technology follows a S curve. So every every time you want to have a, a linear progression, you're going to see the S curve works. And for EV, it's going to be the same. Number four, transition usually play over decades, which is good for oil because oil is going to stay for a long time. Number five, new energy sources increase total consumption by making energy cheaper and allowing it to use in new ways. Number six, New sources are normally additive rather than substitutive, at least in the early and mid stages. Seven, legacy sources can continue growing in absolute terms for decades, even as their market share shrink. Eight, unmet global energy demand will require significant growth in energy for all or almost all sources over the next 30 years. So we need more energy. So that's it. That's a, but it's you. You can check on. I I I like this, which means it's complex. Everybody arrives with simple answers. Oh, uh, it's going to be all green, or it's going to you know green is useless, or this. No, this is. I mean, John Kemp is right. <laughs> it's super complex. Plus, you've got geography and everything on the top of it. So sorry, I made it. I made a long. No, it's at the end. Yeah, John Kemp. First off, has a daily email. 
that if you like energy news and stuff, he sends out every morning or afternoon, I guess our time mm-hmm. or whatever. It's great to follow along if you like um, kind of what he re- reports on. I'll link to his Twitter profile in the show notes so people can get that. If you could send me a link to that eight uh, eight um, points, I'll also include that in the show notes. Where can people find more uh, of your content? You have a podcast. It's uh, Redefining Energy, I believe, is the show. You yes, it is. On Twitter today. I know you're on Twitter, so I find you on Twitter. Uh, so tell people where they can find you. Um, uh, they can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, on Twitter, my handle is uh, MegawattXInfo. And so I have got this podcast I started in a pub three <laughs> years ago with my friend, uh, Gerard Reed. And the first month, we had 40 downloads. And I said, look, this is not going to work. Let's stop that. And it's just growing big now. We are, we are reaching 200,000. And we do about half an hour twice a month. Okay. And we pick, we pick a subject we like. So, you know, with all majors turn into energy majors, you know, what's the economics of batteries. Uh, we've got some one coming out of, uh, you know, on electric vehicles, we call, call it Tesla against the world. So, yeah. So basically we babble for half an hour. <laughs> hey, that's I know I know a little bit about babbling for. A <laughs> okay, we'll link to that and to your um, LinkedIn and Twitter profile in here. Thanks for hopping on. I really appreciate it. Enjoy the discussion as always, um, and uh, I'm sure we'll get you on again in the future. Thank you, Ryan.